0: This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, Chris, and Pat. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. Yeah. The following is a conversation with Robert Green. Robert Green is the author of many best-selling books, including The Laws of Human Nature, Mastery, The Art of Seduction, the 33 Strategies of War, and the 48 Laws of Power, which is the primary subject of our conversation. During our conversation, Robert talks about his definition of power, why humans crave power, how a lack of power affects human beings, how individuals might increase their power in their own life, and how his own increase in power has affected his life. He also talks about Americans' reluctance to speak openly about power, Carl Jung's concept of the shadow and how it may apply to that collective reluctance, whether power is fundamentally neutral, neither good or bad, and the relationship between power and love. The 48 Laws of Power is more than 20 years old, yet it is consistently in the top 10 of Amazon's bestseller list. Robert's work can help people understand power's role in human affairs. And with more knowledge and honesty, Perhaps individuals can use power both to improve one's life, live with self-awareness, and hold oneself to high standards. As I noted during our conversation, one of my favorite quotes from history comes from Lincoln. Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Robert Greene. Robert Green, I have wanted to talk to you for months and months of time, so it is really great to meet you. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Dan. My pleasure.
0: I know we're going to talk primarily about one theme today, which is power. And I thought I might start just for the listeners in defining the best definition I have come across related to power and to get your thoughts on what this word really means to you. The best definition I have come across is power is having influence over your environment and the people around you. I don't know if that definition resonates for yourself, but when you think about power, when you talk about power, how do you think about that word, that concept in and of itself?
1: Well, um, this, I just like to begin it with the idea of powerlessness to sort of set off why power is so important to humans. And essentially, the feeling that you have no control as you say over your environment but let's boil it down to you have no control over the behavior of your children you can't get your spouse has some irritating habits you have no control you can't change that you're in war your career and you're kind of stuck somewhere and you've got an awful boss there's nothing you can do and just your your the future doesn't look good that sense of powerlessness and lack of control will warp your spirit, will warp your soul, and it will lead to all kinds of neurotic behavior and health issues, quite frankly. And this has been documented. Um, So the idea begins, you can't have complete control. It's impossible. Things are too random. You can't Nobody could have predicted the pandemic, for instance. You have no control over that. Things happen. I suffered a stroke four years ago. I had no control over that, although perhaps I could have maybe been a little bit more preventive. But you know, as they say, shit happens. So, but the idea is you want a margin of control. You want a little bit more control than you normally have in your life right at this moment. And so the idea is for me, in order to get this margin of control. You have to also have control over yourself. So it's not just power over people, because I'm not talking about the ability to manipulate people. That is something I talk about in the 48 Laws of Power. You want to be able to influence them. You want to get them to be interested in your ideas. You want to change their behavior. You want to have the ability to direct your career path, but also yourself. You are the source of your own problems in life. It's a theme I hammer into, into my readers over and over again. The bad things that happen to you are not always, but are often stem from something you've done, or you are at least partly responsible for it. You don't have power or control over your own emotions. They kind of run rampant. You're not aware of them. You're not in control of your own patterns of behavior. You tend to repeat the same kind of strategies. We are compulsive creatures. So it begins with awareness of yourself. And the ability to have some kind of mastery over the primitive part of our nature, over the emotions, not suppressing emotions, you need them. But the ability to control some of your darker impulses, to be able to control what you say to people so you don't just spout things that are going to offend them, right? So if you have that sense of power over yourself, then all the other things that we're talking about will kind of emanate, will kind of flourish from that kind of core essence, I believe.
0: Yeah. You know, I was rereading your book prior to this conversation over the last few days, and you wouldn't think it necessarily in reading the document, but I know you have said this in many interviews prior to this one, (laughs) that as a young man, you were a sensitive and, you know, in your recollection of your life, rather naive person. Yeah. And I'm, I always like to get the Genesis story to big projects on this podcast and on this YouTube channel. Who was Robert Greene before writing this book? You know, you, you, it seems like you had to learn a lot of these lessons the hard way. What was it like for you being talented, but naive and innocent on your path to writing the 48 laws of power?
1: Well, it caused a lot of pain. Um, You know, hidden pain, pain that's not necessarily obvious. So when your career isn't quite going right and you feel like there is something you can contribute, but you're not able to do it and you don't really know why, um, then things sort of things happen inside of you. You get depressed. I was extremely depressed before I wrote the 48 Laws of Power. I was starting to lose faith in myself, although never completely. And you can start to sort of spiral downward. So, um, I mean, I was essentially the same person that I am now, but um, now the books that I've written, because I've written seven books, I'm on my eighth book now, they've also changed me in a very deep way because to write a book requires so much effort. You have to bring your whole body into it, all your habits, your daily life, it sort of takes you over and it kind of rewires your brain. So writing the books have actually kind of shaped me in a way. But, you know, prior to writing the 48 Laws of Power, I was deeply frustrated because I knew that I had something to say. I had a message, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. But my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, she said, you know, before writing the 48 Laws of Power, you were giving me the best advice on my own career, on what on my own problems, and so it was natural that you were able to write this book. But when I gave advice to people before writing the Forty Eight Laws of Power, nobody listened to me because who's who are you? You haven't written a book. You're a nobody. You're kind of a failure in life. You you had sixty different jobs. You never succeeded in Hollywood, etc. So who are you to give me advice? Now, suddenly the 48 laws of power appears and everybody wants my advice, but I'm still the same person. I'm still thinking in the same way. So a little bit of it is kind of an illusion, but it's also the fact that it's based on something. It's also not an illusion, though it's based on something very real, on incredible amounts of hard work. And all of the pain that I went through, I don't want to over-dramatize it because, you know I. I wasn't, I had a a good life. I was making money, not, not, I was very, wasn't rich at all, at all, but I had, I was able to support myself, but I was kind of upset and depressed, but all of it came out in the end because I had developed so many skills over the years and I never completely lost faith in myself. And so when I got the chance to write the 48 laws of power. Actually, back in 1995 was the was the first little germ of it. I was so ready, I was so prepared that man, I, I gave it everything I had in it, and it just took off from there.
0: You have said, I know, in prior conversations, that there is a there is a fury, there's a there's a, a underlying sense of rage in that book. And you know, one of the most amazing things to me about the the book itself is, you know, it's more than 20 years old. And I checked a few days ago. I checked yesterday. I checked just before this conversation. It was in the top 10 last week. It was 11 yesterday. It's 12 today. All right. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. Very, very few books have that kind of enduring message that would captivate so many people. I've heard you say this too in prior interviews that... You know, we, we're both Americans that people are often reluctant to talk candidly about power in our society. Yeah. Why do you think that is? And I, I want to talk about Carl Jung later in this conversation uh, yeah. and the concept of the shadow, which I think you and I are both equally fascinated by. How do you think about power in our culture? And, and what is the reluctance to be a bit more candid about people's desire for that in, in America and in the world?
1: Well, um, I don't have the quote in front of me. Actually, I do have it here. It's one of my favorite quotes. I don't know if it's kind of long. It's from Gore Vidal. Please. And it goes, we have got so into the habit of dissembling motives of denying certain dark constants of human behavior that it is difficult to find a reputable American historian who will acknowledge the crude fact that a Franklin Roosevelt, say, wanted to be president merely to wield power, to be famed and feared. To learn this simple fact, one must wade through a sea of evasions. History as sociology, leaders as teachers, bland benevolence as a motive force, when finally power is an end in itself and the instinctive urge to prevail, the most single important human trait, The necessary force without which no city was built, no city destroyed. That kind of sums it up for me. I mean, and where Gorbatchev was coming from was here's America. Certainly when he was running to this day still, it was the most powerful country in the world, right? And yet nobody wants to acknowledge that this power is anything but good. That it only stems from the most benevolent uh, motives, that everything we do is not motivated for the desire for power. It's motivated by the desire to spread democracy, to spread our good example. Whereas history, American history reveals all kinds of examples of actually we were reaching for power, right? And so we don't like to discuss it because we like to think of ourselves as these kind of angels, right? Whereas in Europe, not to say that you're superior, because I'm I'm very happy that I'm an American. I'm very proud of it. But in Europe, you know, you've had you've dealt with so much darkness. You know that the, the French history is full of people craving power. You had Napoleon Bonaparte. You had Louis XIV. Italy, you had Machiavelli. You had Cesare Borgia. England, you had, you know, Gladstone. You had Winston Churchill. You had the empire. You know, Russia, you had Peter the Great. They know that the motivating force behind their history is, has a lot to do with power. But we don't like to do that because we, we think of everybody. We think of George Washington. We have this kind of namby-pamby view of our own past. you know. And um, the great writer, Angela Carter, said, we like to think that we're descended from angels as opposed to being descended from primates, mm-hmm. right? And so Americans have a discomfort with the idea of power, so, for instance, someone like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, very powerful tech people who are, are premier, or one was now is premier entrepreneurs in the country. They're not after power; they're after you know creating a brilliant technological society. They're about helping humanity. Certainly, there's that element, but who can deny? that somebody like an Elon Musk is hungry for power. Just the fact of wanting to have that kind of power over billions of people with, with his purchasing of Twitter, et cetera. But to analyze it from that angle seems like dark and ugly to us and we don't want to do it. And so that's why the 48 laws of power has still in the top 10 in this country, not necessarily for my own brilliance, but because I hit that, that dark edge, and I exposed it, and I revealed the fact that America is a country of carn artists, of sharpers, people from the 19th century, who were what we would what call then sharpers, but we call carn artists now. It's something entrenched in our history. And I, you know, I very much mind this element, that power is a motivating force in Hollywood, in the music industry, in tech, In politics and i think it resonated people because it's a we're so repressed in general
0: yeah and i think you i would imagine would agree with this that there are gradients of power that are more wicked and evil than others but i i do think it's important to invert the word and talk about powerlessness this is something you've already talked about that What is it like for an individual who feels that they have no power over their life? What is it, you know, in this country, a workaholic nation, why is it that people are so interested in coming here to get a great job, to work really hard? I would love to get your thoughts on this, but to me, at root is a desire for additional power, which is what economic resources really do provide to people. What do you make of that in general? You already spoke about powerlessness, but in terms of maybe just day-to-day examples of individuals that are clear for the pursuit of power in and of itself, are, is work and money the first thing that comes to your mind? How do you think about that in general?
1: About, um, you mean the, the goal for of power, big work and money?
0: In that it, it is a, to me, it's a clear attempt to make more money is an attempt to have additional power over your circumstances. Um, How do you think about that? How do you think about money as an aspect and work as an aspect of individuals attempt to increase their own power?
1: Well, I emphasize work much more than money in my books. I have nothing against money. I think money is very important and I'm hardly one to speak. I mean, I I, I live a rather comfortable life, but uh, when I think back on myself, when I think about the people I know and who I consult with, with people who come to me with their problems and their pain. A lot of it stems from something deeper than just money, and money becomes kind of a surface way of looking at it. It really is a sense of a lack of fulfillment in your life. Like you were meant to accomplish something. You had goals, you had dreams, you had aspirations when you were a child, when you were growing up in some other country, et cetera, and, and your options were very limited. And choosing a career that fits you, that fits you emotionally and intellectually is the deep, most satisfying thing that you can aim for. And in the end, will bring you more money than you can imagine. Whereas people who are just after money and associate money with power, and actually, I don't associate the two. So I've consulted with people who are are vastly wealthier than I am. I was on the board of directors for American apparel and, you know, I've seen CEOs. These are people who don't in some ways don't have much power because they don't have any control over themselves. And, and they're, they're at the mercy of market forces, et cetera. They don't have a great vision for the future and they kind of lose the company that they had, or they, they drop, they have a, 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 you know, a very big downfall from their high position because they have no control over themselves. And Machiavelli said what what leads to the downfall of most leaders is that they rise to power based on one critical um, element in their character, like their aggression, okay? But when circumstances change, they can't be flexible, they can't alter. That's a problem in your character deep inside, right? You have no control over yourself. Being able to adapt to circumstances is an incredibly powerful trait. If you have these powerful traits inside, such as resilience, such as the ability to take criticism, such as the ability to handle stress, such as the ability to work with a group and create great things, such as patience, you will get power, you will get money but if you don't have those qualities you can fake it for a while and i've seen many people in business who fake it quite well but in the end those flaws in your character will lead to feelings of powerlessness i don't know if i'm quite answering your question here
0: i think you are and i think oh, yeah. one one aspect of this i would love to get your thoughts on is you know your own life you know we already talked about this in this conversation that a lot of the impetus it sounds like for you to write the book was your own experience of not feeling like you had a significant amount of power in your life. And as you just said in this conversation as well, you know, your life is pretty comfortable. Uh, your, your books have been extraordinarily successful. What's the difference in your estimation of your own life? The difference between Robert at 25, 30, 35 before reaching some professional success and the time in your life in which we're having this conversation is that still salient to you do you still have a you know re- relatively solid recollection of what the difference is between your own life of having some power now and having very little oh, when you were younger
1: god I, I have to obviously because you know i had some very intense experiences a lot of them very negative and when you have negative experiences or things that are very powerfully emotionally they're embedded in your brain and your memory and, and they're, they're very strong and I'll never forget them. But so for instance, in Hollywood, um, you know, I, I'm a bit of, I'm a kind of an entrepreneur at heart. I like working for myself. I like control. I like control over what I write, et cetera. I don't like people telling me yeah. what to write or buddy, but in Hollywood you write something and 12 other people immediately pounce on it. The producer changes it. The agent says, this isn't working. The actors don't like it. You have no control. You have no power. And even worse than that, I worked for um, some directors. And I would like write whole portions of their screenplay and, and and dialogue. They never gave me credit. My name never appeared on that. They totally used me. They used my my dialogue, et cetera, which the people would compliment them for it. But I, nobody knew that I had written it. And so these are things that went into the 48 laws of power, like get others to do the work, but always take the credit, the flip side of that. And when that happened to me, when I was 28, 30 years old, I became very upset, very angry, right? It's unjust. It's not fair. people, don't realize that I'm doing all of this work, I should be getting some credit for it, it bit me, it warped my spirit, it made me bitter. And when I thought back on that, and I wrote the 48 Laws of power, I said, that's not the right way to respond, Robert, the right way to respond is to just understand that that's part of the game. That's, you know, um, Marcus Aurelius has this great quote, about when you enter a boxing ring and people start punching you in the face. You don't whine and complain. Why are you doing that? That's not fair, blah, blah, blah. That's part of the boxing ring. Well, part of being in Hollywood, part of being in the power game, is people exploiting your labor. And it's how you respond. It's not by whining, complaining, getting bitter inside is by realizing that this is how it's played. How can I exploit the situation for my own good? How can I use this in the future and make it a positive experience? And that's why I wrote that chapter. So a lot of my own responses prior to writing The 48 Loss of Power were negative. They weren't productive. They were too emotional. And so when I wrote the book and I thought back, I thought back on my own mistakes I had outshone the master several times and I've been fired. And so there's a big gulf between me prior to me and me now, because I know these things and I have much more awareness of myself, of my flaws and my weaknesses. So the difference is, is, is very noticeable for me. And also in the sense of, I may have a lot of problems. Everybody has problems in life. You know, I have health issues, et cetera, but, I never, ever have to worry about that kind of powerlessness before, again, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have control over my product, over my career, over the books I produce, and that is the most satisfying sensation of all. So there's a very big difference between who I am now and, and back then.
0: And I wanted to, I'm glad you brought that up because that is one aspect of, of your own life that I wanted to talk to you about, which is the real changes in the past few decades of your life that have given you a sense of control. I think, you know, I think you and I both, you mentioned this already, that there's a a sense in America that, you know, we descend from angels and not from primates. And I I certainly, um, I think we probably share a view of, you know, our our own animal nature. It, It was the you know, as you think back on your life, was the great increase in power for you professional autonomy? Is that what you think really gave you that sense of control? I mean, I, to me, we are all, you know, descended from primates. And I don't think in learning the more I have learned about evolutionary history that it is particularly natural for human beings to have a quote unquote boss, I, you know, that there's something. I think deep in the human animal that resists that kind of control. When you think back on your, on your own life, is that, you know, of all the increases in, in power, maybe that you have obtained in your career, do you point to that one as, as the best for you of of having professional time, which really is time control, right? It's, it's autonomy in the, in the world of time. Is that correct for you or do you think about it in another way? I
1: think about that very much. So that's very well put, but it's, it's a kind of combination of qualities. Um, so, you know, I have a a vision about something that I want to create or an idea like the 48 laws of power. And I get very detail oriented. I want to make this book the best book ever on that particular subject. And I bring in all of my research and I bring in all of my creative energy and all of my experiences and I put it together and I create this in, this large project. It's not just the writing, but it's also the research, the way it's crafted, the writing, the style, etc. So I have this overall vision. And when other people are involved, they mess with your vision, right? They So yes, the time element is extremely important because – before I wrote The 48 Laws of Power, I really didn't own my own time. So my pattern of living, at least prior to the book when I worked in Hollywood, was to work six months. And because I couldn't stand it, I would quit and then spend six months trying to write. And at the time, I was writing theater and screenplays and novels. And then I'd be completely broke. And then I'd work another six months, right? But during those six months, I didn't have my, own my time, right? And I I thought that was the most miserable sensation of all. But now the ability to create a complete thing that is a reflection of me and my own weirdness and what makes me different is, to me, the ultimate in power. I, I have no right to complain about anything anymore. Because... I know a lot of people who write books right now, and they don't have the degree of control that I have, right? I can basically write my ticket. So the sense that I can create a vision from start to finish, and pretty much shape it on my own, is, is to me, the ultimate position of power. And um, it's a lot of people don't have that, you know, and I empathize with it very, with them very much, you know, They, they don't have that that luxury that i have and so you know i write a lot about i have never liked having a boss that's that's the other thing in me because i've had 60 different jobs i'd always have the feeling like damn i could do this job better than you why am i in this inferior position why do i have to listen to your bad ideas why do i have to brown nose somebody who's obviously incompetent I hated working for other people. I never held one job for more than 11 months. I couldn't even make it to a year. So um, you add all that up. And yeah, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, but an entrepreneur who writes books. So yeah, that degree of complete control and owning my own time, which is a very important element. I wake up when I want to. The the downside is I have to be able to manage my own time and not have somebody breathing down my neck but it's like the difference between being free and not being free to me
0: yeah I, I think that's very well put and I know you have talked this is a concept I believe that originates from you between the difference of dead time and a lifetime and that owning your time you you really have an ability a capacity for maximizing the amount of a lifetime that you you have in your life and and even you have talked about this as well the ability to turn a boring job into potentially having more elements of of a lifetime. If somebody is listening to this, who identifies themselves as a young Robert Green, they, they hate their boss. They have this real, um, energy for autonomy and independence and are struggling. Obviously you, you did for years and years and years. You, you just said this, that you've had something like 60 jobs before the age of 40, I think. Um, yes. what are the, if you were advising someone who is a, you know, you see a younger version of yourself in them, someone who has some talent and is really driven to become, you just use this word free or at least more free. What are the, what are the one or two pieces of advice or biggest mistakes you see people making that derail them from having a life that they really feel like is, is their own?
1: Well, you have to have patience. Yeah. And um, so a lot of young people are derailed by their impatience and they think that um, I need to get a job that pays a lot of money. As we said before, they equate money with that freedom. And I equate learning skills with freedom. So when you're in your 20s, what you want to do is you want to have some fun. You want to have some adventures. You don't want to be so narrow focused that you're only heading down this one little career path like that. Because you're young, life is exciting. You need to enjoy that and you need to make use of it because believe me, it doesn't last that long. But during that incredibly wonderful period of life in your 20s, you want to be learning skills You want to be learning about life. You want to be learning about people. And so don't be in a hurry to create that great business. Don't be in a hurry to write that great book. Accumulate experience about people. Accumulate skills. For me, it was writing skills and life experiences that went into the 48 laws of power. But, you know, other people are going to have a different path. They're going to go into business, et cetera. And I often tell people, if you're 22, 23, and you're living in Brooklyn like you are in Williamsburg, and you're offered two jobs out of school college, one is like $100,000 at you know some, some Wall Street firm, right? And the other is like $25,000 a year working at some tech startup in Brooklyn where there's only four people working there. And it may not last for a few months. Take that $25,000 job because you're going to learn. You're going to develop skills. It's going to be hands-on. You will get an education that is far superior to any MBA, to any internship at Goldman Sachs, et cetera, right? So you want to learn. You want to develop. And you want to explore. So maybe you think that you really want to head down this path towards being a writer or being a lawyer or whatever, and you try things out and you realize, no, that isn't really a good fit. But there was an element that I liked and an element that I hated. What was the element I liked? Well, maybe that reveals to me a side path I can start taking. And so your path to power is never like that. It's right? You find this doesn't work. You go over here. You find that. You constantly Then slowly. It gets a little bit straighter. I'm sorry for my weird body language, here, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, in order to do that, you have to be patient. you have to have faith in yourself, and you have to tell yourself that your most creative years, honestly, and I've studied this and I wrote a book on it called Mastery about it, is when you hit thirty. Mm-hmm. That's when you're at your top. you've for me, it was a little bit later, but let's say, in your th- early 30s, because you've learned all these things, you you had all this excitement, you've experienced, et cetera, but your mind is still open and fresh. It doesn't close down like it does when you get in your 40s and 50s and everything becomes stale. Hmm. You still have an open mind. Now you've had all these experiences. You're going to create some amazing business, right? And so that's the path I would tell people Is It's got to be your own path. You can't follow Robert Greene's path because it's going to be different. But you can follow the model, which is explore, have adventures, and accumulate skills. Hmm. If you accumulate three or four skills in your 20s, um, for me it was writing, it was discipline, it was research, it was languages, etc., by the time you hit 30, 35, you can be able to take all those skills and combine them into something that's very powerful and very unique. So that's sort of the advice that I would give.
0: Yeah. And I mean, to me, that sounds like iterating, tinkering while obtaining skills and having a, a long time horizon. You know, you just mentioned the word discipline. And I think you were referencing this earlier in the conversation that you know, you are your own boss and with that comes the ability to slack off. And oh, yeah. you know th- this is something that I would love to get your thoughts on as well, because it is one thing to obtain the freedom that you have gotten through a lot of hard work and uh, many, many years and a lot of patience. But what is the importance of self-mastery in your judgment in continuing to have Really self-power, the ability, you know, you're an ambitious guy. You're somebody who is interested in putting your ideas out into the world and writing great books and putting everything you have into your own writing. How have you been able to maintain the discipline necessary to continue to crank out the work that you have? And what are the daily habits like for you have been like for you over the over your career? Once you got the autonomy you so desperately wanted
1: well um first of all I have to admit that I am human and I'm frail and I waste time and I procrastinate big time yeah you know I, I like sports a lot so I get on these websites for basketball and I waste hours maybe you know more time than I really should you know and other things so I'm'm I'm, I'm pretty good at wasting time so I'm not perfect I'm not the perfect most ultimate disciplined person in the in the world, although I'm pretty I'm pretty high up on that scale. Yeah. But um, you know, um, when you write, I wrote the Forty Eight Laws of Power, and I had some success, right? Um, initially, I'm like forty years old when it comes out, more or less, and um, little yeah, and uh, but I know because of my own life, that success is evanescent, it could disappear tomorrow. That a book that sells pretty well, there's a lot of writers out there whose second book just bombs, they never recover. And it's kind of a downward spiral. And then if your second book bombs, you're not gonna get a big advance for your third book, et cetera. So failure is nipping at my heels constantly, right? Like a devil. So I know, that tomorrow it could all disappear because I experienced 18 years of wandering through the desert, right? So if I had had success with the 48 laws of power when I was 24, 25, which frankly would have never happened because I didn't have enough life experience, I would have been a mess. Yeah, I would have like, wow, I'm so great. you know? I, I'm going to just go buy some stuff. I'm, I'll write my next book. I'll figure it out, whatever I want. I've got the golden touch. But I had been seasoned and I knew that failure is a a, a reality for everybody and particularly for a writer. So when it came time for my second book, which was The Art of Seduction, I said, I don't want to repeat the 48 Laws of Power because I know just repeating the same idea is not a failure. It's not a recipe for success, right? It's, It's repetitive. And my process has always been if you're excited about something, If it truly hits you there and you want to do it, you're going to make something a lot better than if you're just doing it for money or just doing it out of what laziness, et cetera. So I wrote the 48 laws of power and I'm going, okay, I want to do a book on seduction. I don't want to repeat the same thing. Man, I've got to make this book even better. I've got to put more effort into it. I can't rest on my laurels. I have to do more research. I have to write it in different style. That book came out. It didn't have, huge success because it, it came out right during nine eleven. It slowly grew until it's now sold over a million copies and it's been very successful. But after I finished that book, man, I better, I'm back to square one. All right, I'm going to write a book on war and strategy, a very difficult book. Each time I'm always back to square one. And here I now I'm on my eighth book, you know, and I'm still doing the same. It's it's a little bit, it's a little bit neurotic. I have to admit it's almost like this fear of failure is this a, a slight negative element to it, but I use it to push me. And I'm going, this book that I'm writing now, it has to be my best book ever. You know, I want to like change how you look at the world. And so I've got to just work really, really hard at it. So the sense of, it could all disappear. It still hasn't left me. I'm still feeling that that um, that devil on my heels nipping me, and so um, that kind of makes me discipline, makes me work, even though I do procrastinate.
0: Keeps you going. Yeah. There are there are two quotes that I, I want to read. Um, this is a an Abraham Lincoln quote, which I actually said this at my brother's wedding as his be- best man, and is one of my all time favorite quotes about power in general. The quote is this, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Right. Maybe if we could stop there and give you a little time to flesh that idea out, because I I think one of the reasons why people are so suspicious of, of you and your work related to power is they think there is something inherently unethical and dark about talking openly about power, of recognizing the the desire of humans to obtain power. But given that that Lincoln quote, I'd love to just give you an opportunity to speak to that. It sounded like maybe you have heard that quote before as well. Sure. How does a good man or a good woman or someone who aspires to be a better man or a better woman, in the spirit of that quote, and I'll read it one more time, nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. How does a decent, you know, well-meaning person who wants to have a, a, an ethical, sane North Star compass for how they're living their life, while at the same time being clear-eyed about the importance of power in, their, in the world and in their own life, in their own objectives, how should such a person think about and enact out the spirit of that statement in general in their own life?
1: Well, it's a very complicated um, question and like four things are spooling (laughs) around in my head right now. Um, One thing I like to ground it in is the fact that we're social animals to the core. So and that's why we're powerful. So even though I'm an entrepreneur at heart, I have to acknowledge that I had public educations. I had parents. I had teachers. I had mentors who actually helped guide my life. So you have to develop, as you get power, a a degree of humility, not too much humility, because that can get disgusting. Mm -hmm. Um, But a degree of humility that it's not just about you, that a lot of people have contributed to you getting to the position that you have, right? And that ultimately, power is a numbers game, because we are a social animal. So if you go through life, pissing people off, infuriating them and fending them. Even if you rise to a position of moderate power or a high position, you're going to lose it because people will turn against you because you haven't played the social game right. Hmm. So if power is a social game, if the work environment is a social environment and it depends on getting a good team together and working with people and knowing how to um, cooperate, then that alters the game completely It gets you out of the ego driven mode of power. It's not about you. It's not about the attention you get. It's not about the money. For me, it's about creating something great that's going to change people's lives. So it's what motivates you. That's going to determine whether the power kind of warps you or not. Right. Mm-hmm. So the idea that power is inherently evil is just the stupidest idea I can think of. Right. Abraham Lincoln wielded enormous power and he had this tool in his hand and he used it to maximum effect. He was a brilliant, brilliant president, but he understood the game of power very well, right? But he wasn't somebody that was driven by his ego. Now we're not angels, as I said, we're primates. So there is always an element of ego. You can't divorce that from it. It's just a matter of degree. So if you're focused only on the attention you get only on the love that people show you, um, you know, then it's going to fade. You're not going to be able to have much power. It won't last very long. Mm-hmm. But if your intent, your motivation is, I want to use it for some good. I want to take this instrument and I want to create a great product, a great business, a kick-ass automobile, uh, a great book, you know, some piece of music that's really going to inspire people. That's a whole different way of thinking about power, you know? And um, I don't know. uh, It's weird because people think of my book as evil. Some do. And inevitably I find a lot of them are very uncomfortable with their own ideas about power, right? They can't come to terms with it. And um, among my readership, probably probably um, my main core readers in some ways is the African-American community. Yeah. And yesterday I, I was meeting with a rapper, Jeezy. I don't know if you've heard of Jeezy. Sure. He used to be called Young Jeezy. And he's telling me, you know, how, how popular the book is in the hip hop and in the African-American community. These are people without power traditionally. When 50 rose up in the in music industry, He had no power. Um, African-American artists were the most exploited artists ever in the history of of arts, right? And so they liked the book because they're coming from powerlessness and it's opening them ideas that used to be only in the hands of elites, right? It gave them a sense of control, a way of navigating these very difficult environments and not being so naive. Hmm. So to me, that's a demonstration that the book, isn't really a handbook for the evil, you know, maniacal CEOs out there. That it's more people who don't have power, who feel kind of oppressed, or feel they they want some control. That's who kind of glom onto this book. Yeah. So to me, that that's a very telling sign.
0: I think it's something that is somewhat related to the First Amendment, right? That the freedom of speech really is designed for. The minority voice who is powerlessness but still has the ability to speak openly about some truth that they think they may have stumbled upon you know right While i was hearing your description right there about you know power in general is it ge- your general view that you know power in its baseline nature is neutral like any technology that can be used for good or for ill that it is not inherently one way or another, or do you do you have a sort of default bias that power given our animal natures is more likely to be dark than not
1: well, you know it it probably is is a bit of the latter, yeah, but I look at like technology, and I look at the internet, for instance, so if you go back twenty years in the dark ages of the internet when it was in its infancy, it was very exciting time. We were using the internet for me. It's, it's for example, to communicate, to make friends with people who had my interests. I remember there were algorithms on Amazon back in those days where if you liked a certain um, composer or or musician, it would, you could see communities of other people who liked it. Wow. This is great. You know, I'm a John Coltrane freak. I can find out all the John I can communicate with them. I can find places to go, et cetera, et cetera. It was exciting. It was wild. It was kind of, we didn't know what to expect. And it was an instrument that could have been brilliant for, for as a social animal. And look what happens year by year by year by year. This curtain starts to come down and human nature starts taking over. And this brilliant invention that is neutral, that could be great, it gets warped and changed into actually an instrument of control. Mm. So for, we go from freedom to find. you know, Amazon <clears throat> got rid of that algorithm after a couple of years because it wasn't selling enough books, right? Mm. It was disrupting. It was made people think about making friends and not like buying things, right? And you could say that the same thing. I notice the same thing on Facebook, on MySpace, God you know, go back thousands of years. Um, so, you know, and slowly the curtain starts to descend and things get darker and darker and darker and darker. And people know how to manipulate and they know how to use algorithms to mess with our minds and to program and engineer our thinking and create colors and sounds that hit the addiction button in us, and buy more things, et cetera, et cetera. Human nature takes over and it warps it. And now, you know, it becomes an element where criminal elements can like can thrive, you know? And the same thing would happen with cryptocurrency. The same thing happened with the telephone, with the telegraph, with the television, with the automobile. They start off, wow, what freedom. This is amazing. Look what we can do. And slowly the dark stuff starts coming in and in and in because that's human nature. And I wish it weren't.
0: Yeah. Speaking of that, and I mentioned his name earlier in the conversation that I know you're a big fan of of Carl Jung and have talked about in yes. any interviews I've seen the concept of, of the shadow. And I want to oh. read this is the best definition that I have found. And I, I actually think this is directly from Jung, where he is giving a he probably gave multiple de- definitions of the shadow over his his life, but this is one of them. And this is me quoting him. I would define the shadow as those parts of us or of our groups and organizations that when brought to consciousness are troubling to our concept of ourselves, contradictory to our professed values or intimidating in what they may ask of our timid souls. When I think about power in the context of America, and obviously this is a sweeping generalization and you've already spoken to this a little bit during this conversation, that perhaps the reason why we are so uncomfortable With talking candidly about power is that it flies, it it makes us uncomfortable. It flies in the face of our cheery, polite, welcoming, positive, benevolent perception of ourselves. Um, In hearing that definition of the shadow from Jung, just as a cultural analysis for yourself, when you think about, you said this too that your your book it 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 struck a nerve. You know, people in this country are seemingly desperate for an outlet and a, and a candor about power in this country. What do you make of, of you know power as a shadow element within the American psyche? I know that's a, a large question, but one I would imagine you have thought about quite a bit in your career.
1: Well, the shadow comes out as an individual. We all have a shadow and a dark side. And a culture has a shadow and a culture has a dark side. And, you know, we can say it's not just America. Every culture has that. So you have your ideals about what the world should be like, about what your country is like and what patriotism means. And whenever you have something positive, as Jung demonstrates, it generates the opposite. It generates the shadow side. He called it enantia which is a Greek word that comes from Heraclitus. It's about contradictions. Mm-hmm. So the moment something appears as an ideal or something, it generates the opposite. And you can't help that happening. And so our, our culture has the shadow side. I like to look at movies, for example, to, or music, but listen, movies is more pro, uh, really more kind of primal. I think a lot of our shadow side comes out in films, in our entertainment, right? The violence, the kind of anger, the kind of primal satisfaction we get from somebody getting revenge and killing the villain and all of the guns and bloodshed. And, and in those films, what do we see? We see all of the Machiavellian characters running amok. And they, in the end, They get killed, you know, there's a little nice little tidy moral tied up at the end so that we can all feel good again about ourselves. But what the film is really communicating is it's communicating the shadow. It's giving you a vent so you can look at all those dark little villains and actually delight in seeing them because you're so repressed and you're excited by the Joker, by all these icons, et cetera, et cetera. You're more interested in the villains than in the good guys because the villains generate the story. All the dark elements in our culture, they just ooze out. In, in our entertainment and film. It's, it's there with black and white. And people like to try to tack on the happy ending or the little moral at the end. But to me, the real message is in the medium, is what the whole film shows and the violence. And we see the kind of undercurrent that has always existed in American culture, the violence from the frontier days, kind of percolating and still, you know, very much part of our reality here in the 21st century. So, um, you know, I, I guess I've lost sense of what the question was. It happens to me sometimes. Well, the, um,
0: you just you just use this word repression, and I think a lot of what uh, the way you the way you just describe the shadow is the inverse of the way one might present themselves to the world. And what are the ways that you see in this in our country that are the primary me- ways in which people feel repressed. You know, I remember when breaking bad, for example, was taking off and it was one of those series in a long line of very popular TV shows where the main character was an anti-hero right. you know, was someone was an everyman who comes down with a cancer diagnosis. And within a couple of episodes is a drug kin- Kingpin who has no qualms about killing other people. How do you think about that in terms of our own shadow side, our own repression in, in the country? How how, how, is that, how would you detail that and describe that about the U.S.?
1: Well, um, I don't know. I don't really know quite how to answer that. I mean, I'm sort of saying that in entertainment and in shows like Breaking Bad or shows like House of Cards or whatever, all of the things that we don't want to acknowledge about ourselves, we put in these films, and they're like dreams. So it's been shown by psychoanalysts that being in a movie theater, which is now no longer our experience so much, kind of simulates the idea of being in bed and then dreaming and asleep, Hmm. right? And when you dream, that shadow is running free, right? How many dreams do you have? I constantly have them, I admit, of, I committed a crime. I killed somebody. Oh, my God. The police are after me. You know, I just did this sexual act with this woman cheating on this person. Oh, my God. What's going to happen to me? All of the repressed emotions, they just come bubbling out in your dreams, right? They're there. And they're in your unconscious. And my, I tried to point out in The Laws of Human Nature that what you really want to do is acknowledge your shadow So if we as Americans could acknowledge the fact that we are fascinated with crime, that we are fascinated with con artists, that we are fascinated with people who get away with stuff, right? If we had some honesty, it would be a lot better for us in the end, I think, as as much as it is for an individual, it would be for our culture, right? Then these movies wouldn't have to be so repressed. Then we wouldn't have to, tie on the little moral thing at the end, we would all realize that this is actually who we are. This is our reality. But what happens with people and cultures is you deny. So it's always the other person that has the shadow. It's always the criminal. It's always the guy who's starting a meth lab. He's the bad person. No, me, I don't have anything like that. So the venting of our repressed side comes out in entertainment, but we never get to reflect on ourselves. Like, Mm. well, maybe I'm just like that character in Breaking Bad. Maybe I'm like the Joker. Maybe I have a side that's manipulative, that's dark, that I could even commit a crime, that I could even be in prison, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the problem. That's the repressed element that's very dangerous. Mm. When you can't acknowledge that you have a dark side, then it comes out in all sorts of other ways, very dark in in very evil ways because you have no control over yourself so that's to some degree how i would answer that question
0: you know you had a very popular interview that you did earlier this year with jordan peterson oh yeah this (laughs) is you know the two of you have a lot of overlap i think in you know (laughs) ideas that you think matter for for a society and a culture and i know this is something that he has talked about many times about integrating the shadow, right? And I think the <laughs> real reason, I think for, for people who are listening to this, who disagree, they were one of the ideas, one of the thoughts that I would imagine. They How can you ideas.
1: disagree? Uh, well, I, I, I How can think, you disagree with reality.
0: <laughs> I, I think <laughs> they. Way. it's scary, right? Yeah. They, they're concerned. Why would you want to bring up something so dark? Why would you want to even bring that to your own consciousness? And I think the big point is the one you just made, which is that By integrating that, by being honest, by seeing clearly your own nature, you are much less likely to be controlled by it and have moments where you do do something truly awful. Um, Is that roughly your analysis and conclusion about the shadow and the the repressed side of our natures in general?
1: Well, I mean, doing something awful, there's degrees of that. Obviously, there's murder. Most people aren't going to go that far. But the less talked about, more subtle side of of the dark shadow will be abusing your spouse, of being a boss who kind of exploits and manipulates people, who says something really nasty to offend. You know, it kind of comes out in this sort of behavior that you don't really control, which afterwards you can excuse and say, give some rationalization. It leads to treating people poorly, right? Right and kind of exploitative manipulative like behavior and things that in the end are going to cost you because they will cost you. Um, But, you know, so coming to terms with your shadow is by far the most important thing, because if you don't come to terms with it, it's like controlling you. Mm. Right. And so, you know, the, the most, the way to make it productive, to integrate it is a, is a two-step process First, to acknowledge that you have a shadow. And it's it's not easy. It's painful. Because you like to think of yourself as a good, moral, fair, smart individual. But you have to look in the mirror and you have to go, no, Robert, and I'm talking really about me, mm-hmm. you are capable of hurting people. You are capable of being insensitive. You are capable of exploiting someone's labor. In fact, Robert, you have done it several occasions and you have been narcissistic and here are the times you've done it damn it and this is what I was going through as I wrote that book right damn it that is me Mm. you know uh all right but then I thought and I realized you know and also some of it is I have a lot of anger and kind of ambitious energy where I want like I I really want power for its own sake I don't deny that then I think well, what did you do? You channeled all of that energy into writing your books. You put that anger and that ambitious energy into creating a book, right? into exposing all these things that are going on. okay? you You've always been somebody who doesn't like injustice, mm-hmm. and you're trying to maybe talk about that in some of your books about giving power to people who normally don't have power. So channeling your anger, Channeling your ambition, channeling your resentments and bitterness about your experiences in the past instead of letting them stew in you and come out in all these kind of unintended ways is is the most brilliant thing you can do because that dark energy, that aggressiveness, that ambition, that kind of energy behind it is very powerful. It contains something very exciting Mm -hmm. if you know how to channel it. You know, athletes are really good at that. They take their anger and their competitive spirit, and they put it into crushing their enemy totally, to quote one of my own laws. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to win, and being aggressive and ambitious and competitive turns into a positive thing. You know, Malcolm X, who's one of the icons in the art of seduction, he took all of his anger and frustration and bitterness mm-hmm. about what it was like growing up black and poor in in, mass, in Boston, and he put it into becoming this preacher. And when he preached all of that anger, it wasn't just like spewing, it wasn't ranting, but it was there underneath that he channeled into something brilliant and it led to great power. If you're an artist, that anger, that dark side contains all of this incredible energy. It's full of creativity. Don't deny it, don't repress it, but face it and channel it is what I tell people, because if not, it's going to control you. You're going to be mean to your children. You're going to make them try and become something that they don't want to become. You're going to enforce on people your own ideas instead of being gentle on them. You won't know how to persuade and influence people. You'll be running amok because your shadow is, is doing things that you're not even aware of.
0: Yeah. Also with the risk of living in denial, of not being honest with yourself about what is, what's happening, letting, letting the dark side went out in your behavior. And I, I was thinking as you were giving that answer about an example that I, I know Jordan Peterson has given many times, it's a book called ordinary men. And it wouldn't surprise me if you're familiar with that book, but it, it's, it documents the story of German police officers from the 1930s Yes. and, and talks the reader through the evolution of these middle-class married Ethical, normal individuals who, within six, seven, eight years, have joined the Nazi regime and the the Nazi military, the Third Reich, and are shooting innocent pregnant women in the back of the head in Vienna or elsewhere in Europe. And that's obviously an extreme example of that. But I think it it is an important thing to remember, as you just said, when we think about evil in the world, that we think that individuals like that are so much different than we are when in reality they're so much more common to us well, than we well, like to believe
1: well i mean we were talking earlier about the internet and now the kind of the curtain descending as i just discussed the internet is now this incredible medium for venting your shadow side yeah so you get all of these trolls coming out of the woodwork and they can actually do all of their trollish comments and push people's buttons, say kinds kinds of nasty things and kind of be angry and violent and aggressive and pay no price for it. Yeah. Right. They can get away with it. Wow. That's fantastic. That's another place where our dark side comes out and it's ugly and it's, it's quite frankly, destroying social media to, to a large extent. I know many people who won't go back on Twitter because they faced mobs before. And so, you know, if you the other thing about the dark side is if you believe in a cause, such as you're a conservative or a liberal or whatever, that gives you license to do all kinds of dark, ugly things because it's all for the sake of goodness. It's all for the sake of of this ideal that I have. So I can be mean to people because. I have good intentions. I'm trying, you know. I'm I, I'm going to save the planet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So also ideals and and, and feeling like you're part of some great cause is generally a cover from getting out your dark. Not always. I don't mean to say that, that all good causes are like that for sure. No, but some causes are like that where people get to join it, get to vent all that ugly dark energy. The thing is, the shadow is like a vacuum. Mm right if you you have it in you and if you find a place to vent it it just sucks it out of you and you go to it you go to the internet you go to some public space where you can be with 100 other people spewing your anger about something etc etc so that's that's why you have to come to terms with it and stop denying it
0: yeah you know i wasn't Planning to go in this direction per se with this conversation, but it would behoove me. I, I would be remiss to not bring this up with you because a lot of the conversations I have had on this show are about the fraying of American culture and, and American society, the polarization, the the spewing of of rage and anger that you just talked about. And I'm wondering, given your expertise in this realm of human psychology, and your thinking about you know the shadow in general. And probably just as an American, a desire for the center to hold and for this American experiment to continue. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if if that is you know a net goal over the long haul for yourself, you know I I bet we agree on this that we're in a perilous time right now in a very odd moment in American history where things do seem to be significantly more. Afraid and polarized than is normal in our own history, despite our own historical issues as a nation. How do you think about that in terms of how well-meaning people, regardless of whether on, they're on the right or the left, might be able to begin to hold the center and to leave space for disagreement, but with a, a long-term goal of attempting to keep keep this this project going, given the The risks we have, and given, given our own human nature, our own darkness, which you have written so eloquently about.
1: Well, the first thing to understand is it's not a unique moment in history. There never is. Yeah. You study history a lot. You see these kind of polarizing tendencies. It's like a dynamic that occurs over and over and over again. We saw it in ancient Greece. We saw it in ancient Rome. We see it through the course of modern European history. We see it in our own country with the slavery and, and the Civil War, etc. There have been other very polarizing moments. The 1960s maybe is not nearly as extreme as now, but it was quite polarized back then. So these things come and go in waves. But um, democracy is an experiment. It's 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 one of the great social experiments in history. Right. And if you study like ancient Greece, and you study the history of democracies, you get to appreciate the brilliance of them and the fragility of them. And they depend on the ability for conflict and disagreement. But for with this particular tone of we're all in this together. Right. There is compromise. There's room for compromise. It's not like you're on the other side. You're evil. It's like there's a way to take someone's differences and kind of see, well, we have to create, this is part of our society. This is part of the experiment that we have created. And um, there's a great, one of my favorite books is by a writer named Richard Sennett, and it's called The Fall of Public Man. I believe it was written in the 80s. He kind of illustrates the origin of urban life in cities throughout history. That's not the whole part. That's a theme in the book, a thread. And he shows that, you know, high points in culture like 18th century Paris and, and coffee houses in London, there was this ideal of people being able to be in the same environment and have all kinds of differences and different points of view and kind of melding them together in these sort of exciting encounters. And if people had a different opinion than yours. You didn't take it personally. It was just part of, of the scene. It was just part of, of living in a great thriving um, city, right? And so, you know, these are our ideals. And um, and yeah, it, it's, it's fraying and it's very depressing. And it's almost like when it starts locking into it, like the gears lock into polarization, it can't stop. It, you can't stop it there's nothing you can do because everything you do to try and stop it just feeds the polarization even more right it has to come maybe it has to hit rock bottom as it does with individuals maybe we have to have some more i hate to say it, more violence more confrontation maybe something ugly has to happen to wake people up because in the past you know you have the civil war the war ends You try and reconcile it. It never quite, it never really got reconciled in the South, et cetera. But then, you know, these things pass and you kind of learn and you maybe go back or the democracy is destroyed forever. But I don't have any brilliant advice about how to stop the dynamic because it's, it's almost running out of control. And the things we've created, like the internet and social media, are making it worse and worse and worse and worse. So even if some individuals are noble and think you've got to save this this country, et cetera, you can't work against these forces where all that dark element in human nature is just drawn to it like a vacuum, like I said. So it's these are dark times. But um when you read a lot of history, you know that these times will also pass.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is you know, for myself, I, I talk about this a lot with friends. You know, a a sliver of hope that I have about modern times is new media opportunities for people to have a richer diet of exposure to people who they disagree with. Obviously, it's easy to get caught in an echo chamber and not be exposed to ideas and and people you think you hate. But long form interviews, I it's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of the medium is. An incredible way to be exposed in a much more human way to individuals who you think you have nothing in common with, and can walk away even if you still disagree from disagree with them after watching, you know, a long form interview with a senator or a governor or a political thinker that you didn't think you had anything in common with. I just know in my own life it has really affected and been formative for me in mo- in moderating me.
1: Yeah, um, I, I agree. So you're doing that you're interviewing people who disagree with you, who come from the opposite political side?
0: I have done some of that, but I think in general it's just me seeking out, you know, in my for my personal uh vantage point people who are conservative because that that was not something that I ever identified with, but over time and with the media that's available online, I came to have a lot more respect for my own blind spots and the intelligence and decency of people that even if I don't agree with their political philosophy, that I, I can understand their perspective, even if I don't per- personally agree with it. There are, there are a few laws that I just love to read out for people before closing with a theme that I wanted to get your, your thoughts on. The first one is law number four from your book. And the law is always say less than necessary. And this is me quoting you. When you are trying to impress people with words, the more you say, the more common you appear and the less in control. Even if you are saying something banal, it will seem original if you make it vague, open ended and, and Sphinx like powerful people impress and intimidating by saying less. The more you say, the more likely you are to say something foolish. This is law number 40. Despise the free lunch. What is offered for free is dangerous. It usually involves either a trick or a hidden obligation. What has worth is worth paying for. By paying your own way, you stay clear of gratitude, guilt, and deceit. It is often wise to pay the full price. There is no cutting corners with excellence. I love that line. Be lavish with your money and keep it circulating, for generosity is a sign and a magnet for power. And then these final two might be my favorite. This is law 46. (laughs) Never appear too perfect. Appearing better than others is always dangerous, but most dangerous of all is to appear to have no faults or weaknesses. Envy creates (laughs) silent enemies. It is smart to occasionally display defects and admit to harmless vices in order to deflect envy and appear more human and approachable. Only gods and the dead can seem perfect with impunity. Then the final one, this is law 47. Do not go past the mark you aimed for. In victory, learn when to stop. The moment of victory is often the moment of greatest peril. In the heat of victory, arrogance and overconfidence can push you past the goal you had aimed for. And by going too far, you make more enemies than you defeat. Do not allow success to go to your head. There is no substitute for strategy and careful planning. Set a goal. And when you reach it, stop. I feel like that last one is something you have to live through to really appreciate, but I certainly identify with that and see the wisdom in it myself. The, the last Idea and concept that I wanted to go over with you, which I have admittedly seen probably dozens of hours of your interviews in the course of the last few years. Wow. And a a topic I don't know that I have ever seen you speak about in relation to power is the concept of love. And, you know, we may have already come to a, a decent framework for thinking about this in the neutrality of power in general. Uh, which we talked about earlier in the conversation. But, you know, in my mind, love is an area of life. If there is something that you truly love, and again, maybe this is going back to the power being a you know, something that's possible and capable of creating great evil and, and great beauty, that love is not an area of life where an exercise of, you know, coercive power Is appropriate, or even you know, could even conceivably exist. How do you think about power in its relation to love in general?
1: Well, I mean, um, these are words that we've created, um, and so you know, they're, they're kind of fluid. They're just symbols. So certainly, we can say that in relationships, in love relationships, in married relationships, power dynamics exist right? And we can even say that, you know, it's often an arena where the worst power struggles come out and people can use love sometimes for manipulative purposes, etc. But then let's say that there's an ideal of love as opposed to the reality mm-hmm. of it. And the ideal is a wonderful, worthy thing. And it's where you're, you're kind of egoless and you're, th- give yourself completely to the other. And you kind of surrender your willpower, for a moment, at least, and you say, I'm not going to think about myself. I'm not going to think about my own interest. It's not going to be about what I can get out of it. It's about the other. It's about you. It's about me pouring myself into your energy, and just appreciating you for who you are loving you for who you are not asking no strings attached now that's an extremely powerful way of looking at love Mm -hmm. and it comes with incredible rewards but not that you should be thinking about those rewards right but um, that's the ideal and that's what it should be like Uh, it's not necessarily the reality that we're dealing with but um I talk a lot in my books, I talked about it in The Art of Seduction, which a lot of people kind of misunderstand that could be my own fault, Um, about getting inside the other person and their spirit and their energy and imagining what their life is like and what it's like to be a different human being. Now, that's not always just love because you can do that in the office, you can do that with your colleagues, with, with your children whom you do love, etc., But it is a form of love to me, a sense of getting out of sight of yourself and entering the world of other people and going, that salesperson at the pharmacy, what's their world like? What are they thinking right now? And applying this in a general sense. And if more people did that, if more people lived according to that ideal, that I want to be inside other people's worlds. I want to think in my way inside of them. I want to understand them because they have stories to tell. The world would be a much different place, right? And that's the kind of energy you want. I talk about that is empathy. Mm. So there is self-love, narcissism, which we all have. We're self-obsessed. But when you take that self-love and you turn it outward, it becomes empathy and it becomes a, a different form of love. And so in a human social animal sense the ability to do that to get outside of your own narrow circle of interests and about who you are and what you want and delving into the worlds of other people is to me the social animal ideal that i wish i wish we could live up to and i certainly don't live up to that all the time i try to and it's what makes me write books in the sense that i'm continually thinking about the reader, mm. about their lives, about what I can say and do to help other people, it's the better side of my own nature. But that's how I how I look at at that that symbol, that word love.
0: Yeah, and if I could sneak in one summary, sure. final summary question about that, you know, it. If I'm hearing you correctly, it seems to me that what you're saying is that that egoless ideal that we all have in relationship to love is an ideal, but it is one worth striving for. And that I think when I hear you give that answer, your view would be while we continuously fall short of that as primate, human, flawed animals, it's a worthy objective in general.
1: Most definitely. I mean, um, you know, I practice a form of Zen meditation, which I've been doing for 12 years now. And the idea of enlightenment, which is the goal of this meditation process, is a complete sense of the ego dropping out. And understanding that there's no difference between inside and outside, that the world lives within you. And that it's, it's about to, it's described as the ultimate form of compassion and that's kind of the ideal, and that's what I'm personally striving after I had not reached it in my own meditative practice, and so in that sense, love is a kind of a form of enlightenment, sort of the ultimate form of enlightenment.
0: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful place to close. Um, Robert, I, I told you this before we started recording, it, this is a huge honor for me to huh. be able to do this, and I, I certainly am one of these people who has had you know, my perspective on life significantly changed by your own work and your own writing. Um, I really appreciate you giving me this time and, and coming on the show. It was wonderful to meet you.
1: Oh, thank you, Dan. I really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed meeting you as well. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.